Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Benjamin Wittes, also of the Brookings Institution and the editor of Lawfare. Welcome one and all. Um, since we discussed the possible topics for this week, uh, there's been news. We, we've seen the Congress uh, authorize a new federal holiday for Juneteenth. We've seen a number of Supreme Court cases. We've seen Mitch McConnell say that he would not hold a hearing for a Supreme Court nominee if, it, if a vacancy happens in 2024 and the Republicans take control, or possibly even not even in 2023. But All of that is just going to have to wait for another program because today we are scheduled to discuss the uh, revelations about the Trump White House's uh, attempts to pressure the Department of Justice uh, on a number of fronts, both both regarding the election uh, and challenging the election and also... um, uh, with leak investigations that may have pulled in, well, multi- we know it pulled in multiple journalists, congressional Democrats, and even Don McGahn, the president's own counsel. So I'd like to begin with you, Ben Wittes. Uh, and by the way, if any listeners are not listening to the fantastic podcast uh, about the French Village that Ben Wittes does with our colleague Sarah Longwell, you're missing out. So I would uh, recommend that. Thank you. Uh, but in, in the here and now, um, uh, Ben, what do you make of this, um, of these stories, you know, that the, that the Trump uh, administration, for example, was uh, sicking the FBI on their own uh, White House counsel. Well, so the, the stories are quite different from one another, though they do have this question in common, which is, you know, to what extent were we seeing political abuse of the Justice Department? Um, some of them uh, alarm me less than others. So in uh, in descending order of alarmometer, uh, I think the, the, the single most troubling of them is the uh, uh, pressure that was put on uh, the then uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, uh, or was uh, to you know intervene or find uh, in in the waning days of the Trump administration to get involved in propagating the big lie and take. Uh, seriously, these entirely non-serious allegations of voter fraud. Um, And, you know, the story is not surprising, but if you particularly combine it with the other things that we know that the president was doing in this period, which, of course, culminate in January 6th, um, you know, this was a sustained effort to get the Justice Department to effectively lie in court and represent efforts to overturn the election results. And, you know, that is a the deepest possible corruption of the department. And the only mitigation of it is that uh, Rosen, to his credit, seems to have wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so I think that story is, you know, very troubling. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, there... And, and reflects the, you know, the some of the worst political abuses of the department since Watergate, frankly. Um, the leak investigations are a somewhat different story um, because, in fact, there's really no indication that this was unlawful uh, or, you know, the Justice Department does have the authority to investigate leaks even when they come from Congress and even when they come, uh, you know, when when they inconvenience or burden the press. Um, I I think the evidence is that the Justice Department was extremely aggressive 
in with respect to the press inquiries. It's less obvious that that's right with respect to uh, to the members of Congress and uh, their staffs for reason, reasons I can explain. Uh, the number of these cases involving members of the press is, is really large. Um, and, the, um, uh, and so I think there's a, a disturbing possibility that they really just ignored the traditional reasons for caution in this area that administrations of both parties have respected. The McGahn story is uh, very odd and falls in the same uh, category as the um, as the congressional stuff, which is uh, they you know they're entitled to investigate leaks. Uh, it's very strange to. Uh, concurrently rely on and investigate, you know, rely on for legal advice and all sorts of things, somebody who you are also uh, fishing for their, you know, phone records for. So I, I, I think the it's a mixed bag. Um, the, uh, the broad story from my point of view is that the department was, uh, you know, was very aggressive about looking perhaps legally, uh, for misconduct by people who the president happened to hate anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, Damon Linker, um, the, there was a, there was a lower ranking guy at the justice department in those final days, Jeffrey Bossert Clark, um, who was apparently, um, you know, an eager, Trump acolyte who was ready and willing to pursue uh, these du uh, you know, completely fictitious voter fraud cases. And there was apparently even talk um, about Trump firing Rosen, I guess, who was the acting attorney general at that point, and, uh, and putting this, this guy in. And this was only averted by the threat of mass resignations. At, uh, at the Department of Justice. But this is the sort of thing that really makes, you know, those of us who worry about the fate of democracy and the fate of self-government, uh, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Because, yeah, this time uh, the, the uh, people at the Justice Department resisted, but would they next time? Yeah, I mean, in, in our long and on this podcast and then going further uh, among commentators on politics for the last five years, there's been a long, ongoing, in-depth debate about what is the threat that Trump poses to our system and beyond Trump, the entire tendency of politics that he represents. And, and, you know, we talk about, is it the corruption? Is it, uh, the kind of, uh, the kind of low, uh, the low standards for competence? Is it the vulgarity? Is it the cruelty? And I think really I've come to the conclusion that by far the biggest threat is this kind of ethic that he's injected into our politics that is summarized quite well by his own little statement, uh, he fights. Uh, that that came came to circulate around him during the 2016 uh, primaries on the GOP side. That the reason why we should support him versus any of these other 16 people who are running is that Trump alone would fight to effectively the death to win. And this appealed to a lot of Republican voters. And I think what we're seeing now in things like what you rehearsed from uh, the, the revelations this week about the Justice Department after the last election is this ethic and how incredibly corrosive it is when you have people on one side of our partisan divides de deciding that winning is all that matters and the only virtue that should be judged in reference to that end is to fight to make it happen. You don't care about norms, laws, uh, the, the rules that govern institutions internally. You simply do whatever you need to do to triumph. And the problem with this ethic, of course, is that 
it really to fight it relies on a kind of amorphous, uh, more traditional moral virtue on the part of public servants that is fragile, and there's no guarantee that it will persist. And once it's gone, there is really all the norms are gone with it. And of course, it's very easy for the Trump side of this debate to respond and say. Look, you people aren't noble, uh, noble public servants upholding the rule of law. You're just a bunch of wimps who wouldn't fight enough to win. And once that kind of an argument gets instantiated on one side of our political divides, it is incredibly dangerous because, as I said, once those who resist it are gone, then there really will be a willingness to do absolutely anything to prevail. And I don't really know what to do about it, but it's it's really scary as hell. Uh, Linda, I'm going to uh, I'm going to play um, MAGA uh, advocate here and say, okay, so the, they would say, um, oh, who are you kidding? Um, the Obama White House uh, and and administration abused the FBI to pick on. Um, you know, Tea Party groups that it didn't like. Um, they uh, wiretapped um, uh, James Rosen of Fox News. Um, at one point, they even tried to get Fox News removed from the press office. Um, you know, they're they're going to say that that's how they play the game. So we are just we're just responding. We're just being defensive. Well, first of all, as someone who never defended the Obama administration when it did those kinds of things, I feel uh, no compunction to defend the Trump administration when it decided to uh, adopt uh, similar tactics. Look, I think, you know, the worst thing in Trump world uh, and for Trump himself is to be a loser. There is nothing worse than you can say about Donald Trump than that he is a loser. And the uh, the fact is that democracy depends less on the goodwill of winners than it does on the goodwill of losers. I mean, the whole system is based on the notion that if you lose, you accept that loss and you go uh, about your business and you come back to fight another day uh, if you choose to do so. And I think that was what is, is so incredibly corrosive about uh, what Trump has done. Because I think once you take out the uh, prohibitions, the kind of internal uh, check that people have, uh, their willingness to accept uh, loss, then democracy falls apart. I mean, it just simply cannot survive. Then it's really all about who has the most muscle, um, who can command the most forces. And that, of course, is what autocracies are all about. So it, it's a very disturbing thing that we've seen. And while I agree that uh, most of the people within the Justice Department uh, decided that they weren't going to go along, uh, I think they sort of placated Trump uh, and Mark Meadows and others by passing on information. They, they sent it down to uh, U.S. attorneys in various districts as if they should have some reason to look into it. Uh, but they basically didn't go along. But there was at least one person in a high-level position holding uh, an assistant AG spot for two different divisions, the civil division and uh, the environmental division. And that was... Um, someone named Jeffrey Clark. And he apparently um, thought that maybe he could become uh, the next attorney general. And if Rosen didn't go along with this, he was certainly willing to do it. And of course, as the uh, Washington Post and other publications pointed out, that didn't happen because they everybody ended up in the Oval Office and the president was informed that it would make this, uh, that the kind of uh, resignations that the Justice Department would make the Saturday night massacre look like child's play. So it didn't happen, but it came very close to happening. And, um, you know, I don't know what kinds of institutional safeguards you can put in place, but we can never get this close 
to essentially overturning an election. Bill, um, there are things going on at local levels. There's the uh, investigation of Trump by the Manhattan DA, and there are other investigations. I don't know what's happening in Georgia, but apparently there was an investigation into Trump's call to Raffensperger demanding 11,870 more votes. Um, some people are saying that violated the law about not, you know, try, uh, there's a law against interfering in a federal election. Um, don't know where those stand. But one of the things that some people on the left are urging is that, um, is that uh, Merrick Garland has been too soft. He has, for institutional reasons, continued some of the positions of the Trump Justice Department, even regarding that woman, uh, Carol, I can't remember her first name now, who alleged rape. And anyway, um, so, uh, but some people are saying, look, Garland should be revisiting the uh, obstruction of justice uh, allegations in the uh, Mueller report um, and uh, and other wrongdoing. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that argument? <clears throat> well, unlike Ben Wittes, I am not an expert on the Justice Department uh, or any of its penumbras and emanations. Uh, I'm aware of this discussion on the left. I'm starting to get press calls about Merrick Garland's alleged softness. Uh my view, sight unseen, is that he is trying to restore normality to a much abused institution, uh, that he is doing his best not to get into partisan fights, uh, not to try to revisit past issues that have turned out to be explosive. In other words, to, draw, to try to draw as much as it is possible to do so, a double line under the recent past and, you know, and then try to begin with a reasonably clean slate. Uh, and I don't know whether that's the right thing to do. From an institutional standpoint, it's certainly the right thing to do. From a political standpoint, uh, it's, it's complicated but I have a great deal of sympathy with the position he finds himself in now. Uh, because if you simply turn the Justice Department around and send it charging off in the opposite direction with, with equal political zeal, uh, I think that that could just make a bad situation worse. I could be argued out of that, but uh, that's where I am now. But let me just pick up for a minute where Linda left off. Uh, the question of institutional fixes for a dangerously loose-jointed relationship between uh, the White House and the Justice Department, I think that is exactly the right question to be asking right now. What disturbs me most about the past five years is that is what I at least have learned about the inadequacy of both the Constitution and existing legislation to protect ourselves from a president with autocratic tendencies. And, you know, if we simply shrug and say, well, he broke the norms and we have to restore the norms, I think that's, that's missing at least a part of the point. I think this is an institutional problem that requires institutional reform to try to get a handle on it, details to come. Hmm. Might be worth revisiting that uh, book by Bauer and Goldsmith after Trump, because it was uh, chock full of institutional reforms. Uh, so maybe we'll go back and look at that again. Oh, well, Ben, you, um, Ben Wittes, you had a role in publishing that book now that I think about it. <laughs> I did. Um, I, I was its and, editor. There you go. Okay. Well, if there's anything you'd like to add on that subject real quick, then you can, but otherwise we'll move on to uh, Biden's foreign trip. So I wanted to address the issue of uh, the criticism that uh, Garland and company have received and suggest that um, it is 
a premature and to the extent that the issues are uh, fairly joined so far, it's wrong. Um, so on the issues of, of on the prematureness of it, I, you know, we don't actually know what issues they have reopened, uh, what issues they have, uh, you know, whether they are taking another look at some of the questions from uh, the Mueller report or that sort of thing. We do know that they're actively pursuing the Giuliani investigation. But, you know, when the Justice Department uh, opens, reopens a matter, it's not necessarily visible. And so the perception that they have been inactive may be just a perception and may have only glancing uh, relation to reality. Um, what we do know is that uh, in the E. Jean Carroll matter, uh, they continued the position that the Trump administration took, which involves an, an obscure uh, an obscure question uh, under the Westfall Act with very important. Uh, consequences politically. Um, and I just want to say that uh, to everybody who is convinced that, you know, they should be uh, not trying to defend the former president or not suggesting that he's immune from, from, from this suit or that the United States can step in for him uh, in this suit, uh, consider uh, how many people have made uh, slanderously false allegations about Joe Biden uh, in the last year or so. And if uh, Biden were to deny those allegations, as Trump denied um, the rape allegations uh, from uh, E. Jean Carroll, and they were to sue him, uh, would you want Biden to have to defend the suit? Now, I think it's actually a very hard question. And the circumstances in which you, uh, I, I actually don't think the current state of the law is very satisfying. Um, so I don't mean to sound like uh, a sort of executive power hardliner on this, but uh, there was never a chance that the Justice Department would not defend, would not take this position under the Trump administration, under the Biden administration, under the Obama administration, under the Bush administration. And so I think people are, you know, just not thinking the way the attorney general has to think about what the institutional interests of the presidency and the department are, and the idea that the president should have to personally defend every uh, libel suit that comes up is, it may be right, but it's not, a, it's not a position that the Justice Department is likely to embrace. And so I would say, yeah, there's going to be more institutional continuity between, the, between departments, as there always is. If you were looking for somebody who was going to spit in the face of that tradition uh, and not and, you know, and for political reasons and not just partisan political reasons, but, you know, political interests and in justice, you know, throw aside the traditions of the department to go after Donald Trump and his people. That person was not Merrick Garland. And those of us who urged the president to name Merrick Garland did that knowing that he would represent the traditions of the Justice Department. And so what I would say is, look, some of it is, is you know, you got to wait two or three years to know how investigations are going to play out. Um, and it is a good thing whenever a Justice Department, whenever a Democratic administration is willing to defend an act of Congress that you know they wouldn't have voted for if they were legislators or a Republican administration is willing to do that. That is a good thing. And these are these are the traditions of the department and we should not be uh, we should not be shy about celebrating them. Uh, excellent points. Uh, I cannot help adding though that um, if God forbid Tara Reed were to uh, sue, uh, Joe Biden for libel <laughs> because he denied ever having sexually assaulted her. Um, I, I'm pretty confident that 
Biden would not respond by saying, that's ridiculous. She's not my type. <laughs> I, look, if, if you turned federal uh, law and tradition upside down every time Donald Trump violated a norm, um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we, would, we would live in you know, some land described by Jonathan Swift in Gulliver's <laughs> Travels, um, and you just can't behave that way. And I am not... Um, I actually think the state of the law on when you can and can't sue president is a little bit messed up. Um, and I, you know, we, that's a rabbit hole. I don't necessarily think you want to go down, though I'm happy to. But my point is that, uh, you know, the, there is an institution that makes the argument for greater protection for the president in situations like this, and that is the Department of Justice. Okay. Uh, President Biden went to Europe this week, um, met with the G7, met with NATO, and met with Putin. And um, honestly, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny it. I have to say, watching the way he carried himself, I'll go to you first on this, Bill Galston. I, I thought, you know, maybe we should always have presidents who are at least 78 years old and have a little experience under their belts. I thought he conducted himself very well. What did you think? Well, it will not surprise you, Mona, <laughs> to, you know, to learn, you know, thanks for the softball, that I, I, very, I very much agree with you. But look, you know, I have to ha I have to say that you know that that Putin got Biden about right in his description of him as as a balanced and experienced man uh and he showed in his in his overseas trip just how valuable it can be to have decades of experience not only having these kinds of discussions but in many cases with these very people uh and so he didn't need a lot of advice from his staff as to what was appropriate and inappropriate. You know, a question that is in diplomacy even more even more central than the question of what's true and what's false. Uh, he knew it instinctively, you know, because he has the muscle memory, not only from all those decades in the Senate, but as representing the United States as the second highest ranking American official in international fora uh, for the eight years of the Obama administration. So I agree. And I think, and I think the lesson is that in many aspects of the presidency, experience does count. Uh, it is not a place for on the job training. Uh, and when OJT is required, it is painful, it is public, it is not helpful. So, yeah, uh, I think the Biden that we saw overseas uh, this past week is the, is the Joe Biden that those of us who voted for him, not grudgingly, but enthusiastically expected to see. And I'm happy to be able to report that. Linda, um, You've worked in White Houses. Um, I I was struck that they there were a couple of things that they did, kind of very professionally and smartly, if you will, vis-a-vis, um, -vis, for example, the the meeting with Putin. Um, now, some people say you shouldn't have met with Putin at all, and you can address that if you like. But um, but they made sure, for example, that that Putin would arrive first. Because in the past, Putin has um, attempted to play a little macho power game with presidents by making them wait for him. So they arranged for the, him to arrive first. They also agreed that there would be no joint press conference afterwards. Um, good stage managing, wouldn't you say? Yes, I think it was good stage management. And as somebody who worked uh, in the Reagan White House, as you did, um, it's sort of a return, again, to normalcy. Uh, you know, you had a professional staff that was ensuring that these uh, meetings go off flawlessly, that the um, uh, President Biden um, not be upstaged by uh, Vladimir Putin. And I think that decision not to have a joint uh, press conference was really important because, of course, we do remember the last joint appearance by the President of the United States and the, uh, the President of the Russian Federation, and that was when Donald Trump 
uh, stood uh, next to Putin and basically said that he believed uh, Putin when Putin said that he had not tried to interfere in the 2016 election. So I think just just in some ways, almost the, um, I wouldn't say it was boring, but sort of the banality of it all was um, was very reassuring. Um, it was not as if anything momentous came out of, of this particular set of meetings, uh, but just as we have emerged from a pandemic which in which such meetings could not take place, I think it's important that this meeting took place in a way that was dignified, um, in which you saw world leaders, not just Putin and uh, Biden, but uh, other world leaders on the stage uh, in, in the G7 meeting. Uh, and I think it, it was all sort of, you know, a return to what we have come to expect. And also, you know, in the past, uh, it is it used to be the tradition that the that any kind of disputes uh, did not occur in public while uh, president was overseas. And, and I think, in, in a sense, the Republicans behaved themselves, uh, surprisingly, uh, by not uh, having some sort of a fuss or a blow up that uh, would attempt to uh, bring to the fore any kind of disagreement. So I thought it was a good week. Actually, Linda, I'm going to beg to differ with you about that. I don't think the Republicans conducted themselves well at all. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to pitch this one to uh, to Ben Wittes. Uh, Lindsey Graham uh, went on Fox and said that Biden was engaged in appeasement. Um, he was joined in this by Ron Johnson, Ted Cruz, John Barrasso, um, and uh, you know the the. Um, the really sort of head spinning part of where we are in in the uh, politics of 2021 is that Putin basically recited right wing talking points when he was making his propaganda pitch after the after the meeting. You know, he was repeating the kinds of stuff that you hear on um, on Fox News at night, you know, that, uh, oh, the, the terrible persecution of the peaceful protesters on January 6th and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, there's a few reasons for that. Um, and, you know, you, you risk sounding like a conspiracy theorist when you articulate them. But the truth of the matter is that the right-wing ecosystem has been serially fed information by Russian intelligence over a somewhat protracted period of time at this point. Uh, they recycle matters from each other on a fairly routine basis. And, you know, the uh, one really good place to hear Russian talking points is on Fox News in primetime. And so it's not all that surprising that if you get the Russian president talking, he sounds a bit like a Fox News commentator. Um, I, you know, I, and, and that's the kind of thing that if I heard myself say, if I heard myself 10 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, knew that I was going to say I would wonder if I had, you know, had developed, you know, a delusional system as a in, in my in my fifties. Um, but I I do think it's correct. And so the the other factor is the domestic Republicans, which, um, you know, uh, you mentioned some of the ones who have uh, discovered that showing up at a summit. Uh, with Vladimir Putin is uh, is a can be a scary thing uh, after not really uh, you know after not having been bothered much by Helsinki. Um, I, I guess I don't really know what to say to that except that you know shame is dead and there's no no end of human folly. Um, I I I I have to assume in a way that I. I don't know to be true, but I, I do have a residual faith that in the long run, that kind of thing mocks itself. And, you know, voters aren't the most sophisticated actors in the world, but th they do remember uh, that you can't go easily anyway or uh, from 
from being apologists for, you know, Russian activity to, uh, you know, on a dime, uh, criticizing a president for having what's really a relatively dignified um, meeting with his Russian counterpart. So, uh, look, I, I, I don't think it's an accident that those two ecosystems sound alike. It always reminds me of the American communists, you know, before uh, before the Hitler-Stalin pact. It was, you know, we have to go after the fascists. And after the Hitler-Stalin pact, the next day, it's like, nope, we, we, those are our friends. Anyway, uh, and then, of course, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, we need a second front. You know the story. Anyway, you, you better than, than anybody. All right. So, um, so I'm going to turn now to you, Damon. Look, um, the um, there were there were certain um, takeaways from the whole thing. One was um, that Biden pushed pretty hard to get a united front, both from the um, G seven nations and from uh, NATO uh, about China. He got more from NATO than than from the G seven, which isn't surprising because we lead NATO, but. Um, but, you know, some people might say, well, wait a minute, NATO, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Why are they getting involved in matters that, you know, concern our Pacific uh, uh, relationships? Um, and it seems as though NATO is, ex- NATO is growing and expanding to be sort of the, the centerpiece of um, – free nations uh, who observe the rule of law and the international rules-based system. In fact, they referred to. Uh, yeah, they did. Uh, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I as in always on foreign policy, I'm more inclined to look at these things through the lens of uh, kind of national interest. And so through that lens, I think there are real limits to how much NATO is going to really uh, be there for us in a confrontation with China. They can act as a good force multiplier for us to an extent, and they certainly helped us for many years in Afghanistan. They they were involved and took the lead uh, in a lot of ways in Libya so that they aren't just limited to uh, kind of the narrowly defined European theater, but by the same token, their interests, the interests of most of NATO other than the United States, is by definition not going to be identical to the United States. Uh, we're the ones who have uh, a lot of self-defined interests in East Asia, uh, having to do with Taiwan and many other things, providing security guarantees for places like South Korea and Japan. And so we're we're on the line against uh, China's rise in a way that the countries of Europe are not, which means that if push comes to shove, they're going to be more inclined to want to defer and say, well, you know, this isn't really our fight. We'll, we'll have your back as long as the costs are too high. So um, for the time being, I think Biden did a great job. He got as much consensus and uniformity uh, as he could get, and, and that will prove very fruitful uh, going forward. But the, I do think in the kind of medium term, there are limits to to how much uh, NATO is going to be the the main force confronting China if things get hot. It's going to be us, really, in the end. Um, uh, you know, you, you take as many friends as you can get, and, and uh, it's great that we're doing a good job to keep our friends uh, a little closer than Trump was inclined to do. He was he had trouble even distinguishing between friends and enemies and frequently confused them. Uh, so it's much better to have a president who actually can prioritize in the right way. Uh, so, you know, uh, little victories, right? <laughs> right. Um, I also have to say I was very gratified to see uh, Biden make a point of saying that if Navalny dies in prison, it will not go well for our relations with Russia. And I think he said something like the result, results would be devastating for Russia. I think 
I think that's important, and it's part of who we are um, as a country. And so, could, could uh, I could I, I also add along those that line because I don't think anyone else has mentioned it. I think one of the best moments of the Putin meeting had to do with uh, cyber terrorism and the pipeline, and the fact that. Basically, Biden is trying to reestablish deterrence with Putin. Now, the Trump administration's actual actions were not that conciliatory to Putin, but Trump's rhetoric personally was unbelievably conciliatory. And so you had this crazy kind of schizoid uh, foreign policy going on where the president mm-hmm. is talking as if Putin's like our best friend and his administration itself and and uh, the Secretary of Defense are there uh, taking a very different line. Uh, you know, uh, we had just now Joe Biden sitting in a room with, with Vladimir Putin and saying in, in really no uncertain terms, if you try that crap again by launching a cyber attack on an American pipeline, you're next. So watch it. That is extremely important and I think might be one of the most important things to come out of this whole week. It makes you sit up straight and square your shoulders, doesn't it? Well, it's about time. Like, you know, I mean, what what else does a president have to do except to make clear where we stand and know that if he's drawing a red line, it's a real red line. Whereas under Trump, we just couldn't do that because he and the administration were speaking a totally different language. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of red lines, Obama wasn't so good at observing them either. Right. We have a track um, record of this now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's take a quick look uh, for our final segment at the mayor's race in New York City. I want to look at this because um, New York City, big liberal city, uh, basically the Democratic primary is the only one that matters. Um, there is a Republican primary too, but um, but it's very democratically oriented city, uh, largest city in, in the country. Uh, and yet this, this race, uh, and I'll go to you first, Linda, um, this race seems to be coming down to some moderates, or at least that's the way it looks. It's hard. It's, there isn't great polling, um, but uh, but it's certainly from a from an outsider's point of view, it does seem that uh, this Eric Adams has a is in a very strong position, and uh, that's important considering that crime is one of the major issues on voters' minds. Yeah, I, I found it uh, very heartening that Eric Adams is uh, the front runner, such as it may be. Uh, and I guess the person who is sort of hot on his trail is Catherine Garcia, uh, another uh, candidate who is not, um, you know, totally a, out of the left wing. Uh, she headed up the sanitation department. Um, you know, when you talk about polling, of course, the thing about polling is it may be irrelevant uh, in uh, a race that's going to be decided uh, through, you know, this new uh, kind of cumulative voting. Uh, rank choice Rank voting. choice, rank choice, yeah. So it's, uh, so, you know, rank choice voting, uh, I think, is, is harder to determine what polls mean. But Eric Adams, I didn't really know much about Eric Adams until last year when he started appearing on television, I think even before he'd announced uh, his candidacy for the mayoral race. Uh, but he was, I thought, one of the more... Um, really thoughtful commentators on what was going on uh, in various cities and the efforts to defund the police. Um, He is making police reform a central part of his campaign. And there has been this huge uh, uptick in violent crime uh, in New York City, and not just New York City, but other cities around the country. So I um, I think that's hopeful. I guess one of the surprises out of uh, this mayoral race has been that Andrew Yang, who was, of course, a candidate last time around um, for president um, for the Democratic nomination, um, and seemed to be, you know, very well spoken. He became a favorite of uh, the media. He's not doing very well. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the fact that you have somebody who has experience leading a big police department who is thoughtful about police reform, but does not ignore the fact that there is a huge crime wave going on, uh, I think that's uh, good news for the city of New York. 
Right. Uh, let me just clarify. Eric Adams did not head the police department. No, he I'm the, sorry. He was a uh, captain. He was a yes, captain of the yes, police yes. department. Yes. Right. Sorry. About uh, that. But he was the Brooklyn yes. borough president. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, also a former Republican. Yeah. So Bill Galston, um, you think a former Republican can get to be mayor of New York? Oh, wait, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike Bloomberg, let's recall, is a former everything. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it is It is quite striking. Uh, I agree with the cautionary note about the polling, although the most recent poll did do a simulated ranked choice voting experiment. Uh, and so that was more interesting than the simple head-to-heads that we'd seen up to now. And Adams and Adams bested uh, Garcia in the final round. Uh, the, the progressive wing of the party in New York has been hurt by its failure to coalesce around a single candidate, although that appears to be happening to some extent in the late going. But I think that the broader, deeper interest of uh, the New York City race is as a leading indicator to the actual contours of the crime issue. And it turns out, as it turned out in the late 80s and early 90s, that the communities that are hardest hit by the crime wave, in many cases minority communities, are not interested in less policing. They want better policing. They're not interested in defunding the police. They're interested in retraining the police. And, you know, one one woman, I forget which borough she was from, was quoted as saying to the something to the effect that she was sick and tired of worrying about both the robbers and the police. Uh, and that pretty much summed up the view. I think she said the robbers and the cops, which, yeah. which makes it perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. Uh, uh, I, th- I think that that expresses where the center of gravity of this issue is. And most people in the communities are much less interested in making or scoring ideological points that in then they aren't feeling safe enough to walk out at night if they need to get something at the local grocery store. And uh, I can I can tell you that that's the way the issue shaped up in the late 80s and early, and early 90s uh, and led to the much abused 1994 crime bill. And I would not be surprised to see history repeat itself, at least politically, with the election of responsible local officials yeah, who don't want less policing, they want better policing. So, um, Ben Wittes, we have Diane Morales, uh, who's been labeled the most progressive candidate, who um, uh, wants to cut the New York City Police Department budget in half. Um, she's supported by the Working Families Party. But she's been dogged by allegations of a toxic work environment and trying to um, penalize members of her staff who wanted to form a union, which is a little ironic. <laughs> um, Maya, at least Willie, they didn't want to form a, uh, be represented by the police union. <laughs> right there, you go. Uh, AOC endorsed Maya Willie or Wiley. I don't know. Um, we'll see what kind of heft, you know, what kind of uh, power that has. Um, and again, these things are awfully. Oh, there's one other uh, very progressive candidate, and that was Scott Stringer. But he, who was the Manhattan borough president, but um, but he had a Me Too problem and um, had gotten some endorsements and then lost them. Although he still maintains the support of the teachers union, Jerry Nadler and the climate activist, Bill McKibben. But, um, but it could be that because of the, you know, first choice, second choice, third choice way that this voting is going, that one of these progressive candidates might wind up being the winner. Will, what's your, what's your analysis? Well, so I, you know, because of the nature of the voting, it's very hard to know what to make of the polls because, uh, you know, for example, for example, Andrew Yang was significantly ahead in all the polls for a while and has now dropped down. 
But does that mean that he's a lot of people's second choice? Like they've they kind of liked mm-hmm. him, and but they then they fell in love with somebody else. But you know, a certain large percentage of people would put down Andrew Yang as their second choice in a field this large. The likelihood that nobody gets to fifty percent is very high, and so um, you know if you're if you're serious about ranked choice voting, one of the consequences of that is that you're also serious about the idea that races particularly like this are going to be very hard to poll and that you actually have to go through the exercise of waiting to vote till votes are counted and not just first choice votes, but you know, you 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 tabulate the the uh, the instant runoffs as well. Um, and I actually think that's good. Um, I think it's good to not know who's going to win a race like this until it happens. It reminds people that, you know, the act of voting actually matters and is not simply a ratification of the acts of pollsters. Um, I do think uh, the structure of a race like this tends to disfavor the progressive candidates, which I, um, I, I wholeheartedly uh, support disfavoring uh, uh, hard progressive candidates. But, um, and the reason is that the left really does have a way of fracturing over minor differences. And, um, and so, you know, you end up with these candidates that from a moderate point of view are very hard to distinguish from one another, but their their factions really do not like one another or support one another. And I, uh, and I also think, as you all have said, that the, that the atmosphere now, both with respect to crime, but also with respect to the larger you know, six months of relative success of the Biden administration, which is, you know, not especially moderate in its policy, but extremely moderate in its tone, uh, has, you know, shifted the momentum a little bit away from the AOC wing of the party. And, And so I would not be surprised, particularly in an environment of ranked choice voting, where you know, which tends to disfavor extremes. Um, uh, if you if you uh, saw the the high watermark of the progressive left, and at least for now in the Democratic Party, having uh, you know that we may be past it. Okay, Damon, um, I'm going to sketch a, a somewhat optimistic scenario, and uh, you can then shoot it down if you like, uh, but. You know, if you if you look at what's happened in the past week, you know, we had Biden having a successful foreign trip. Maybe that doesn't matter that much to American voters when it comes to, you know, when it comes to the uh, election time, we'll see. But um, but you also had uh, the announcement by um, by Joe Manchin that he's uh, fine with a compromise bill. Uh, that would uh, contain some of the features of HR1, S1, uh, the For the People Act, but not others. And this position, and her, uh, uh, Manchin's position was endorsed by um, Stacey Abrams, uh, who is known for, as kind of the, the poster girl for, you know, signing up African-American voters in Georgia and made a huge difference there. Um and you have talk about a compromise on uh, a possible compromise anyway on a on a an infrastructure bill. It, it's almost and and then if the mayoralty of New York goes to a non crazy candidate, um, it might even begin to look like the Democratic Party is finding the sane center ish. <laughs> well, uh, I, that wouldn't surprise me hugely because I've always. I've always suspected that uh, the Democratic Party is pretty divided, but the most progressive faction is by no means the dominant one. And, and I, mean, I mean, we all know uh, from uh, our experience of living through uh, 16 years of New York politics from the 90s through the 2000s, we had two terms of 
Rudy Giuliani, Republican, followed by two terms of Mike Bloomberg, semi-Republican. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, that's that's uh, that says a lot. Now we've had de Blasio, who is very much not that, but he's also leaving uh, not all that popular. So, I mean, I, I'm heartened to see all of these trends. Um in the end, I think that my, my own view is that the democratic future, uh, if it wants to remain um, a majority or a strong plurality party in the United States, cannot be to go in the AOC direction. There simply are not enough votes over there, and it's very hard to unite those votes with votes in the center. So uh, I think it's a dead end, and I'm pleased to see it. The only uh, aspect of what you said that I will uh, be a little bit uh, skeptical about is the stuff about uh, Joe Manchin and, and his moves, which I support uh, in favor of some uh, voting reforms. Uh, I'm I'm very pleased to see that Stacey Abrams uh, has come out uh, in support of those. And for about 30 minutes, I was encouraged. But then I saw a statement from Roy Blunt, uh, senator, Republican senator, saying, quote, once Stacey Abrams endorsed Manchin's election compromise, it became the Stacey Abrams proposal, oh, which, which just by, to which I tweeted in response, everything is so stupid. <laughs> 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 like this, this is just our, our uh, moment encapsulated in a way, yeah. like any move toward trying to find some rough and ready compromise in the middle uh, gets undermined by one of the two sides as quickly as possible and more often than not the republicans so there we have it but yeah in general i'm very encouraged by uh, all of those uh, moves that you you listed okay no good deed goes unpunished as the saying goes um all right let us now turn to our final segment our highlight or low light of the week bill galston you first yes i want to call attention to a piece that just appeared uh, in the New York Times, which made public a very interesting and promising private effort to put together a commission to do what the 9-11 Commission did, but apart from the political system. It's no accident that the same guy, Phil Zellico, uh, who served as the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, is spearheading the formation of this civil society effort, independent of government, backed by uh, a number of major, major foundations. And I think there's a pretty good argument for trying to do this uh, away from government uh, because it is not clear to me that under current political circumstances, we could have a searching and impartial pandemic inquiry, even remotely resembling uh, what we saw out of the 9-11 Commission. That was politically fraught, but in the end, politically manageable. I'm not convinced that, that the politics of a pandemic inquiry authorized and to some extent shaped, shaped by the Congress of the United States can achieve that. Uh, if the Congress does manage to do something good about this, uh, Mr. Zellico has pledged his full cooperation. Uh, but there is a there is a plan B, which I think is a very good and promising one. Okay, Linda. Well, I am going to go with um, a piece that appeared on January. I'm sorry, on June 15th uh, in Commentary Magazine it, uh, by Noah Rothman. Uh, on the online version, and it is entitled Don't Let the Backlash Against Critical Race Theory Become a Victim of Its Own Success. It's a very smart analysis by Noah Rothman, and what Noah suggests is that even though critical race theory uh, is a very bad idea and has no place in our schools, the effort to uh, basically ban it from public school curriculum uh, is not the best way to, uh, to combat it. And what he says in sort of summing up um, is that, you know, you don't want to have uh, one illiberal idea uh, replace another illiberal idea. And that the idea of um, having um, 
various forms of ideology uh, expressly forbidden uh, by state legislatures uh, ends up uh, not really furthering uh, free inquiry, not really furthering the kind of aims that uh, liberal education should in fact be promoting. He said, in the contest of competing illiberalisms, illiberalism wins. So I thought it was a very good piece. Okay. Ben Wittes. I, uh, just before we recorded this, um, I uh, sat down uh, virtually, as one does these days, with uh, four remarkable people to talk about uh, the Biden-Putin summit. Uh, One was... Uh, uh, Alex Vindman. One was Alex's former boss, my colleague and Bill's, Fiona Hill. One was uh, Alina Polyakova of the Center uh, for, uh, uh, sorry, I've got to look up the we'll, name of the organization. Yeah, we'll get that. Uh, yeah. It's SIPA, and it occurs to me this, this uh, center. F- one was Alina Polyakova of the Center for European Policy Analysis, and one was uh, the former president of Estonia, Tomas Ilves. Uh, and uh, it was a, it was in front of a live audience that Lawfare convened, and it was uh, just a remarkable conversation uh, of from a diverse group of people who are interested in Russia and Eastern Europe from a variety of different perspectives. And um, they had rather different attitudes about uh, about the Putin-Biden summit, um, but some very interesting common ground as well. And I learned a lot about uh, President Putin and how uh, we should and shouldn't be interacting with him. And so I, I, we're going to run this on the Lawfare podcast tomorrow, the audio of this, and I uh, commend it to people. It's an extraordinary group of people talking about uh, a, a genuinely uh, a peculiar event that happened, and it even uh, involves the funny story of Alex Vindman's first day at work on the National Security Council, which happened to be the day of the Helsinki summit. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'll look forward to that. Um, Damon Linker. Well, uh, to keep with what seems to be kind of an upbeat uh, tone for today's podcast, um, and also, uh, Mona, your comments uh, before the last question you asked me, kind of glass half full uh, statements, I want to single out uh, a Supreme Court decision that came down just today, Thursday, uh, titled Fulton v. Philadelphia. Uh, And I see this decision as a triumph for liberalism, rightly understood. Understood, uh, and in two senses. First of all, because yeah, it appears in looking at this case, which involved, by the way, a, a Catholic social services organization that uh, sued Philadelphia after the city excluded it from a foster care program because the organization refused to certify same-sex couples as foster parents for uh, for basic uh, Catholic reasons. Um, and what we ended up with in, in the case was a unanimous decision that, uh, that uh, Philadelphia had acted wrongly in this case. And I think that's good both because uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was able to put together a unanimous decision, and he did it by making the decision relatively narrow uh, so that everybody could jump on board, including the three liberals. If you read through the decision, you see that there's some evidence that there was the option of a a, a more uh, firmly conservative ruling uh, that Alito, uh, Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch would have approved, but probably then it would have been a 63 decision with the liberals dissenting. Instead, we got a narrower decision, but one in which uh, it was unanimous, which I think is good for the court and a good model for how to conduct oneself in a polarized environment. But more importantly, I think it was a triumph. The, the decision was a triumph for liberalism because it 
held out a vision of a deeply pluralistic society where people who have uh, firm religious convictions are not protected in their free exercise of religion merely by going to church or praying in their private homes, but by joining with people of common faith in civil society, uh, doing doing deeds, contributing to the common good as they see fit and are not required to check their faith uh, as a price of admission to the public square. So I applaud the court for its nine to zero uh, decision affirming this capacious vision of classical liberalism. And by the way, there are lots of other agencies in Philadelphia that do place with same-sex couples. Yes, of course. Um, so, yes. yes. Okay. Um, I would like to draw attention to a substack by Noah Smith. Um, it's He goes by No Opinion, which is cute. Uh, noopinion.substack.com. It, it does require payment, but uh, it's, I think it's very well worth it. He's a very bright and interesting uh, writer. And uh, this one in particular that, uh, that drew my attention was called The Terrific Triviality of Twitter. Uh, and even beyond the alliteration, um, it's a really interesting piece about uh, the outsized influence that Twitter exerts and how it does it. And he's got reflections on, you know, human nature in there. That is, we all are afraid of being criticized. We all are particularly afraid of a mob that, you know, is going to ostracize us. But he talks about how these fears are really illusory, that Twitter only has power, it has a, a very, very small number of people, and the notion that people are actually being fired uh, because of things they tweeted um, is ridiculous. So it's sort of a, a call to arms to uh, put Twitter in its proper place, and uh, I recommend it. And with that, I want to thank Ben Wittes for joining us today. I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, I can be reached uh, through the Bulwark. If you uh, look up my email address there, I'll tell you anyway. It's monacharin at thebulwark.com. Welcome all of your comments. I read them all. I don't always get a chance to respond to each and every one, but do enjoy hearing from our listeners. Get some good ideas. Uh, if you're feeling particularly benevolent, please go and rate and review us. Brings new listeners to the podcast. And uh, we will return next week as every week. Thank you.